This is The Saucer Life, exploring the history and lore of flying saucers. I'm Aaron Gullius. The Saucer Life is a podcast in which we explore concepts, events, or people from the world of flying saucers. No preconceptions, no snark, no belief, no debunking, no hypnosis. This is Encounter 503, Little Gray Men. When I was thinking through what I wanted to do with this podcast last year, two things that I was desperately trying to avoid were Roswell and alien abductions. Of course, when I decided to spend some time here in the 1990s, it was clear that I couldn't put off abductions, or Roswell, really, forever. I wanted, however, to find a way to look at abductions that took the focus off the phenomenon itself, that actually fit into what I've been trying to do here, telling stories about how these beliefs reflect and recycle the culture and how the saucer life tends to go in circles. And I think I've been able to do that. In this encounter, we're going to look at two men's abduction research and, crucially for our purposes, the conclusions they've drawn from their studies about the entire thing, including what supposed aliens are up to. These men are David Jacobs and Richard Boylan, and in many ways, their work represents a culmination of many of the different narrative strands we've seen since the very beginning of this show. Don't worry, there are lots of great abduction stories that we're going to look at in the future as well. I'm, I'm not... There's going to be some Betty and Barney Hill stuff. There's going to be some Pascagoula stuff. Don't worry, just not today. For now, let's look at some little gray men and what they were supposedly up to in the 1990s. The question of exactly what we mean by abductions and when they began is tricky. If you listen to Encounter 303, you'll hear the story of Antonio Villas Boas, certainly an abductee by some definitions. Betty and Barney Hill, whose story was first extensively told in John Fuller's book The Interrupted Journey, were perhaps the first modern-style abductees. This New Hampshire couple, under hypnosis, reported that they had been taken aboard a spacecraft and had been, quote, treated well by the occupants, rather as humans might treat experimental animals, end quote. The beings on the craft performed various procedures on the hills, including collecting fingernail trimmings and skin samples. Many UFO writers and researchers consider this encounter by Betty and Barney Hill to be the first instance of what would come to be known as the classic abduction case. The so-called abduction phenomenon came to dominate the UFO scene from the 1970s through the 1990s, and by the early 1990s, a number of largely self-appointed experts on the abduction phenomenon had emerged, publishing books and appearing at UFO conventions to share the results of their research. This research often relied on experience or testimony garnered from hypnosis. Some experts came from academia, such as Harvard psychiatrist John Mack, and this lent some prestige and respectability to what was an increasingly dark and frightening manifestation of UFO lore. Over the course of the 1990s, these abduction tales became the most visible manifestation of the UFO and extraterrestrial subculture, drawing far more attention than run-of-the-mill reports of strange lights in the sky. In 1987, novelist Whitley Strieber published Communion, A True Story, a book that became to 1980s abduction lore what Betty and Barney Hill's story had been to the 1960s and 70s. Accompanied by a haunting cover illustration of the classic gray-style alien, Communion recounted a series of Strieber's experiences at an isolated cabin in upstate New York, as well as an account of his attempts through hypnotic regression sessions to understand those experiences. He does not refer to his abductors as aliens, choosing the friendlier term visitors, and presents these events as part of an important journey of discovery. Quote, something is here, be it a message from the stars or from the booming labyrinth of the mind or from both. 
and we will all go down into the labyrinth to meet whatever awaits us there, end quote. Strieber would become a leading figure in the UFO subculture, writing many more books about his experiences and the phenomenon in general, and being a frequent radio and television guest host. During the 1990s, researchers devoted an increasing amount of attention to what the purpose of these abductions might be, in addition to collecting accounts of what actually happened during these supposed encounters. David Jacobs became one of the most well-known abduction researchers of the period. Here's an excerpt from his official biography at ufoabduction.com. David M. Jacobs, Ph.D., is Associate Professor of History at Temple University, specializing in 20th century American history and culture. Dr. Jacobs began researching the controversy over unidentified flying objects in America in the mid-1960s and has amassed over 38 years of primary research data and analytical hypotheses on the subject. In 1973, Dr. Jacobs completed his doctoral dissertation in the field of intellectual history at the University of Wisconsin-Madison on the controversy over unidentified flying objects in America. This was only the second Ph.D. degree granted involving a UFO-related theme. A revised version of his dissertation was published by Indiana University Press as the UFO Controversy in America in 1975. It remains the first sympathetic book on the subject of the existence of UFOs to be published by an academic press. For over 25 years, Dr. Jacobs has offered the only regular curriculum university course on UFOs, UFOs and American Society. Since 1973, Dr. Jacobs has continued to devote most of his professional and personal energies to researching the UFO phenomenon in general, and the abduction phenomenon in particular. Having conducted nearly 900 hypnotic regressions with over 140 abductees, Dr. Jacobs is one of the foremost UFO abduction researchers worldwide. As a result of his extensive primary research, he has developed the first scientific typology of the abduction experience. Dr. Jacobs' research and experiences led him to write two books on the abduction subject during the 1990s. The first was called Secret Life, and the second, which is what we'll be focusing on here, was called The Threat, which was published by Simon & Schuster in January of 1998. So we're going to focus on on the threat because this is the book where we're sort of sort of the culmination both of Jacobs's experiences with abductees combined with his interpretation of what he thinks is going on here. Jacobs claimed in his autobiography or his biographical statement that the threat quote presents the first evidence-driven hypothesis that provides a falsifiable solution to the UFO mystery. That's quite an impressive claim and we could spend hours debating that. What I want to zero in on a little bit is Jacob's methodology and thinking about the abduction phenomenon and those people that he's worked with. At the ufoabduction.com website, there's a guide to hypnosis and abduction, and, and one of the features of this guide is a set of guidelines for selecting an abduction investigator if you think that's what happened to you. One, the person must either be a competent ethical hypnotist or must work with one. Two, the investigator and or hypnotist should be well-versed in the patterns of UFO abductions in order to pursue the investigation correctly, helping the subject explore his or her memories smoothly and systematically. Investigators or hypnotists with a personal agenda, new age, spiritual, transformation, doom and gloom, should be avoided, unless this is precisely what you are looking for. 3. Ideally, the hypnotist should either be a therapist or work with one in order to help the abductee deal with the events that are uncovered. 4. The final criterion is subtle and elusive. The investigator and the hypnotist should be particularly sensitive, perceptive, and willing to learn, 
criteria difficult to obtain, but perhaps most valuable of all. While there is some attention paid here to the psychological need for an experiencer to maybe talk through these things with an expert in psychology or counseling, it's taking a secondary position to having hypnotists and investigators who are well-versed in the patterns of UFO abductions and not having a personal agenda, unless, as Jacob says, this is precisely what you are looking for, which is an odd thing to say. Avoid this unless you're looking for this. But if it's something to be avoided, why would you be looking for it? I find it confusing. Anyway, since its beginnings, the abduction phenomenon has had to answer accusations of hypnotists leading experiencers through their questioning, perhaps introducing aspects of the story that might not have been there initially. In recent years, there's been increasing criticism that the hypnosis involved might be potentially harmful to the experiencers, especially when the hypnotist is a ufologist rather than a, a true sort of psychological expert of any kind. And one example of the dangers that might be involved here can be seen in the selection from the threat. Before false memory syndrome came to prominence, therapists assumed that abduction accounts were due to repressed memories of sexual abuse in childhood. They postulated that because the abuse was so traumatic, the victim unconsciously transposed the abuse into an abduction account. To cope with the terror, the person lived with the more acceptable trauma of being kidnapped by aliens. There is no evidence for this explanation. There are no instances on record of an abduction account being a screen memory of sexual abuse. In fact, the opposite is true. There is a great deal of evidence that people, quote, remember being sexually abused when, in reality, they were victimized by the abduction phenomenon. I, I mean, what? What expertise does a historian or even a hypnotist have to differentiate between a supposed alien abduction and sexual assault or rape? Jake was followed this selection with an account of an experiencer he worked with who had very specific memories of being sexually assaulted and then revealed that under hyp hypnosis, it turned out this was really an alien abduction. Call me a dirty skeptic and a filthy debunker, but that is not good. And I, I'm concerned about that sort of thing. Now, to be fair, um, we have to, uh, we have to say that he does not assume that all memories of sexual assault are abduction related. Obviously not all sexual abuse cases are abduction events. An abductee remembered that she had been sexually assaulted when she was 13. She did not remember how she got downstairs into her teenage assailant's basement bedroom, and she was confused about other details. Suspecting that this could be a screen memory for an abduction, we reviewed it under hypnosis. She remembered the boy, how she got downstairs, what happened in the basement, and what happened afterward. She had no memories of being transported out of the house or being on board a UFO. She had been sexually assaulted and not abducted. Something I've always been a little leery of when reading abduction accounts is what the purpose of the hypnosis sessions actually is. For Jacobs and some other researchers, the focus seems to be on understanding the aliens and their plans rather than primarily helping the experiencer find any sort of help or relief or closure. That's not to say that there never is any sort of therapeutic result for the experiencers, but rather that such things are secondary to learning the truth about the aliens. And what is that truth? Well, as we'll continue to see, the viewpoint of the hypnotist does seem to have some kind of impact on the experiences reported by, or if we're being less charitable, 
the experiences extracted from the witnesses. For Jacobs, and to be honest, for most abduction researchers, experiences and writers of the time, the abduction experience is a traumatic one, involving the harvesting of reproductive material, experimentation, and often involving paralyzing fear for those involved. And there's a culprit, or group of culprits, we can identify. For Jacobs, the beings, often referred to as greys but having a variety of forms, are the villains, and they're aliens, and they have a kind of hierarchy or social structure that he's been able to discern from his hypnotic sessions. The reports of reptilians or insectoids may simply be a matter of word choice, and some abductees apply these descriptive terms to aliens whom other abductees might describe as standard greys. Assuming, however, that reptilian and insect-like beings are actually different types, it is noteworthy that abductees almost always see them with the grey aliens, not alone, and that the tasks they perform are all within the standard alien matrix. They generally perform the taller beings' more specialized functions. Abductees often express dislike or fear of these aliens, sometimes characterizing them as mean or evil, although they have no evidence for these assertions. Although we have not yet delineated the reptilian beings' roles, the insectoid beings are coming into sharper relief. Abductees have reported an alien who seems to have a higher rank and supervisory status than even the taller beings. He is very tall and is usually wearing a cape or long robe with a high collar. He often is described as an insect-like being who looks somewhat like a praying mantis or giant ant. He examines abductees only infrequently and most often engages in staring procedures. When he communicates telepathically with humans, his talk is often more substantive and he is sometimes more forthcoming in the information he imparts. Generally, he stands back, observes the abduction proceedings, and may issue directions to the taller beings. The existence of task-specific beings suggests a hierarchical society and the probability of a governmental body with a downward-flowing chain of command from the insect-like beings to the shorter gray aliens. Other aliens appear to act somewhat subservient to the insect-like beings. If this is the case, then we can hypothesize that they might possess the highest authority for the entire breeding program, and therefore might be the group that initiated it. Ah uh, yes, the breeding program. These creatures are involved in a complex program of genetic manipulation, with a view toward creating creatures which are a hybrid between the aliens and humans. This will lead eventually to a new order, which will feature, quote, insect-like aliens in control, followed by other aliens, hybrids, abductees, and finally, non-abductees, end quote. These hybrids are now living among us, and you can spot them by the fact that they're, well, you can spot them by the fact that they're not very dressy. Late-stage hybrids strive to pass for human, but within limits. On board UFOs, one of the reasons that male hybrids are easy to recognize is that they wear nondescript beige or white garments. In public, however, they dress like humans, blend into the general population, and go unnoticed. They usually wear average, casual clothes. The males wear jeans or khakis, t-shirts or long-sleeved shirts. Abductees have, so far, not reported them wearing more formal attire, such as suits, or more casual clothes, such as shorts. Well, that's cleared that up. Also, it's pretty clear I'm not a hybrid. I, uh, I, I sometimes wear slacks, and I often wear shorts, So, but I do wear khakis sometimes, so am I a hybrid or not? Maybe the clothing thing is not a real great indicator. 
to be honest, this description of the hybrid's clothing choices is, uh, to me, one of the funniest, strangest, and oddly most truthful-sounding bits of alien ephemera I've come across. I mean, really, why would you make up observations about human-alien hybrids that are so banal? Something along the lines of, their eyes have a strange depth to them, something otherworldly, would be more the thing we would expect about how to recognize a hybrid. But no, they, uh, they, wear, they wear khakis but not shorts, is what we end up with. As to the full meaning of these abductions, the hybridization program, and everything else, the book isn't called The Threat for nothing. Listen to the mood here as Jacobs summarizes his findings. We know the alarming dimensions of the alien agenda and its goals. I could never have imagined it would turn out this way. I desperately wish it not to be true. I do not think about the future with much hope. When I was a child, I had a future with much hope. When I was a child, I had a future to look forward to. Now I fear for the future of my own children. Yikes. Still, if you've been with us through the last ten months or so, this vision of a dark future should not be surprising during the 1990s. While Jacob's interpretation of the meaning of these supposed abductions was not unique, neither was it definitive. Other abduction researchers saw the ET presence as far more benevolent. Which brings us to Richard Boylan. For much of the 1990s, this was Boylan's standard biographical statement. Dr. Richard J. Boylan is a Ph.D. behavioral scientist, anthropologist, university associate professor, certified clinical hypnotherapist, consultant, and researcher. He provides hypnotherapy for recalling full details of partially remembered close encounters with the star visitors and for exploring previous life experiences stored in subconscious memory. Dr. Boylan also is a consultant to star kids and star seeds, seeking to understand better their origin, identity, and mission so as to attain optimal awareness and clarity of identity, inner growth, and spiritual development. His career has spanned four decades of service as a social worker, psychologist, clinical hypnotherapist, clergyman, school administrator, and clinic administrator. Since 1989, Boylan has conducted research into human encounters with the star visitors. This has led to his current focus working with the star kids. He has created the Star Kids Project that is working at outreach to these hybrid children with advanced abilities and their families, raising consciousness about starseed heritage, educating these children and parents about advanced abilities and their proper use, and informing the public about this new cosmic generation. Dr. Boylan is president of the Academy of Clinical Close Encounter Therapists, a federally recognized nonprofit educational and research organization. He has conducted numerous workshops for mental health professionals on the specialized counseling for experiencers of star visitor contact. He has lectured widely at regional and national conferences and has been interviewed on numerous radio and television programs. Dr. Boylan is a member of the National Board of Hypnosis and Hypnotic Anesthesiology. He is past president of the Sacramento Valley Psychological Association. Yeah, that was a little long, wasn't it? But it gives you an idea of the breadth and depth of Boylan's approach and experiences. He's a psychologist and a advocate, I guess, for the integration of alien hybrids into our society and helping them achieve their full potential. If it sounds like he is making some assumptions there about the nature of this phenomenon, uh, stay tuned because he might be. In recent years, however, he's tightened up his biography a bit and changed the focus or narrowed the focus to a degree. This is his current biography from his website. Richard Boylan, Ph.D., MS Ed, MSW, BA, is a behavioral scientist, psychology professor, and star cultures anthropologist working with the next generation human star kids and adult star seeds. 
Dr. Boylan is Star Nation's counselor, ambassador for Earth, working on advancing the relationship between cosmic societies and Earth. We'll be touching on some of the reasons he probably had to eliminate some of the material from his biography, especially detailing his status as a psychologist. But um, And we'll also touch a little bit on, on his claim to be a, uh, an ambassador for Earth. But first, let's look at his views on the abduction phenomenon itself. Now, I have to acknowledge that I benefited greatly from the fact that during the early 1990s, Boylan was very active in giving interviews and explaining his research and views in a variety of venues. Because as of now, in 2018, his key books on the abduction phenomenon have not been widely available. However, I think the selections of statements I have from him are representative of his views during the time, and I'm in the process of obtaining some of his more obscure works. And if there are any clarifications needed based on those books when I acquire them, I'll be sure to do that. So, what have we got here? Well, first, let's look at a very important book, and one that I highly recommend, by C.D.B. Bryan. It's called Close Encounters of the Fourth Kind, a reporter's notebook on alien abduction, UFOs, and the conference at MIT. It was published in 1995, and it concerns a June 1992 symposium at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, chaired by MIT physicist David Pritchard, as well as Harvard psychiatrist and abduction researcher John Mack. Among the speakers at this conference was Richard Boylan, and Brian has some extensive interviews with Boylan about his approach to the abduction phenomenon and its experiencers. In his presentation at the conference, Boylan noted that the abductees he had worked with had experienced, quote, uplifting feelings and a sense of expanded consciousness or cosmic perspective, end quote. Boylan argued at the conference that the abduction experiencers he worked with did not experience symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder, or PTSD, even though, based on many of the reports of abduction, they absolutely should have. So why weren't these experiencers traumatized in the way that maybe common sense would dictate they should have been. He had six reasons. One, the aliens show an absence of malice. Two, the abductees generally have ambivalent feelings about the ETs. They are bizarre slash intelligent, detached slash advanced, etc. Three, the ETs communicate reassurances and important agenda. Four, during the abduction, no great harm happens. Five, the contactee following an abduction experience generally becomes more mentally active. Six, he or she becomes more attuned to society and or nature. This sounds like a pretty good deal, to be honest. When experiencers do develop PTSD, Boylan argued that it was because aspects of the encounter may trigger, quote, a flashback to an earlier human sexual molestation experience or a memory of some other kind of abuse. So, basically, those abductees who have experienced any sort of negative psychological consequences from their experiences, those negative psychological consequences are not the result of anything the aliens did. Rather, they result from what humans have done to those people. So, humans, bad. Aliens, good. And that's generally a pretty decent shorthand way to think about Boylan's approach to this topic. Aliens generally have our best interests at heart. Humans are the ones who make the aliens look bad. Brian's book, 
also contains Boylan's revelation to the conference that he himself was an experiencer and that he had extensively toured a number of what he called secret sites in the American Southwest, including the fabled Area 51. In a conversation with Brian, Boylan gets into such UFO and conspiratorial ephemera as MJ-12, remote viewing, and so on. It was in this same time period that Boylan granted an interview to Greg Bishop for his magazine The Excluded Middle. In this interview, Boylan touted the insight that being a behavioral scientist granted him as he explored the abduction phenomenon. Well, I do my research according to the scientific method, and there are very few people doing that in the UFO field, particularly in ET research. What may not be obvious is that I pre-screen my data samples to weed out the crazies, the delusionals, the hoaxers, and any others who, for various reasons, could not be taken as truthful. So what's left is sort of a pure distillate. That's not to say that anyone who comes through the door is taken seriously, but what I've been doing all along in my career in counseling is determining what people believe and what they believe they believe. I've got some problems here. Not with the fact that as a clinical expert, Boylan is probably more qualified to do this than, say, a historian, but weed out the crazies, the delusionals, the hoaxers. It sounds, to me, like that's sort of a euphemism for Boylan selecting a pool of abductees to work with that he knows will agree with his point of view on the overall positive nature of the phenomenon, and indeed the extraterrestrial nature of the whole thing. Bishop, later in the interview, asks Boylan why, more or less, we mostly hear of abduction cases from experiencers who are from stable, largely homogenous backgrounds. This is how Boylan responds. We hear from the kind of people that the Gallup poll talks to. White folks out in the suburbs are easy to find, and you don't have to worry about your tires being on your car when you get back from an interview. It's a reporting artifact, not an incidence artifact. There's a situational reason as well. The ETs seem to want to work with people who have a potential for some kind of consciousness change. Somebody that's on drugs all day is not a real good candidate. However, I've had a number of people on welfare that I've talked to. Where there's no evidence for change, I don't see ETs waste their time with such folk. They love skeptics, though, if there's a chance that you will change your mind and grow from exposure. So you have to be potentially educable. I haven't seen any hardened criminals. Well, he's talked to people on welfare. A number of them. Good, I guess. Also, he seems to be drawing a parallel between socioeconomic status and the ability to have consciousness expanded. He may not know he's doing it, but he certainly appears to be saying that, in his words, quote, white folks out in the suburbs are more likely to be good candidates for consciousness expansion than other demographic groups. Speaking as a white guy out in the suburbs, I disagree. In writing about the phenomenon, Boylan presents a different, more positive outcome for the future than Jacobs does, resulting from our engagement with the extraterrestrials. We look forward as some of the implications of ET-human relationships develop when we finally get to close encounters of the fourth kind, that is, abductions. The open, official, mutually welcomed meeting of our Earth's representatives with the representatives of these other star civilizations, and then we finally have a truly multiracial world. Racial in its true sense of races from other planets, since we are only one human race with different colors and bone structures and so forth. If we get rid of our nuclear weapons and our gunslinging attitude toward solving problems by outdrawing the other guy, then we will be ready for admission into the intergalactic UN, if you will. 
We can look forward to cultural exchanges or representatives from Earth and other civilizations because they have other things to learn from us, just as we have other things to learn from them. And this may involve the actual exchange of people going to other planets to observe their society and their representatives here walking among us. In addition to having a brighter outlook for our contact with aliens than Jacobs does, Boylan also goes further into the conspiracy theory aspects of supposed extraterrestrial contact. From the early 1990s on, he posits that there is a cabal within the U.S. government keeping the existence and nature of the aliens a secret. Any negative abduction experiences people have, he argues, are military abductions designed to fulfill both the secret cabal's experimental needs as well as frame the friendly, helpful aliens for crimes they did not commit and to generate mistrust of these aliens. This cabal has also tried to discredit Boylan, or so he claims. In 1995, California's Board of Psychology determined that Boylan had, quote, abused his role as a therapist and was grossly negligent, end quote, and they revoked his professional licenses. At the time, this was a pretty scandalous and and much-discussed case in the UFO community, as Boylan was accused of suggesting nude hot tub therapy and other fairly unprofessional activities. Interestingly, the findings of the board do not necessarily confirm the most scandalous of the accusations, but the resulting license loss was a blow to Boylan's reputation, which is why he says the cabal tried to uh, do this or carried this out to discredit him because he has the truth and he's awakening people to the truth. From that point on, From the mid-90s onward, he would focus less on the clinical aspects of the abduction experience, since really he couldn't be actively involved in that anymore, and more on the outer space geopolitics of it, and the conspiratorial aspects and the development of an entire worldview of star visitors, star nations, child and adult hybrids, those star kids and star seeds, respectively, and ultimately, the revelation of his own role as some kind of representative from Earth to a galactic council. So, in looking at these guys, David Jacobs, Richard Boylan, my big question is, what do these guys think of contactees? Honestly, that's my my big question. Back in May of 1997, I think, I think it was 1997, he was working on the threat, but it hadn't been released yet. David Jacobs came to my college um, to give one of his talks about abductions, and I was able to have dinner with him with a group of other students and uh, and do a little informal question and answer session. And being me, the first question I had, the only question I had for David Jacobs was, so what do you think of the contactees? And his response was just the the sort of entirely dismissive uh, thing that you get from, from a lot of UFO researchers at the time. The contactees were hoaxers. They were frauds. They were charlatans. They, uh, they were not serious. It wasn't a serious thing. They were reacting in fear to the atomic bomb, things like that. Not entirely wrong in some cases, but I was kind of hoping that this guy who had a a doctorate in history whose dissertation had been about the UFO controversy in America would have a more nuanced take on the contactees than that. So Richard Boylan's take on the contactee question, I, I came to know this from an email exchange, sort of an email interview that I conducted with Dr. Boylan when I was working on my uh, my thesis in graduate school about UFO belief during the Cold War, including contactees. I emailed Boylan and asked him what he thought of the contactees and presented him with my thesis that they were um, not simply reacting in fear 
to the dangers of the Cold War world, but were a um, sort of sort of a, a social force for progress. And that's sort of how they presented themselves. And this is how Boylan responded. I think that you may wish to consider that the early contactees did not superimpose the star visitor's phenomenon to address unsatisfactory social and political situations, but rather that the star visitors held clear views about certain follies of Earth's societal and political positions, and that the contactees of the 50s and early 60s were merely repeating what the visitors had told or shown them. It is my view that the 50s are like the 90s in the early part of the current century. There were, then, as now, genuine experiencers, as well as charlatans and wannabes, as well as the early disinformation peddlers and debunkers. So the comments I heard from them personally, which are entirely consistent with the views presented in their writings, provide some interesting insight into their views of the entire phenomenon. Both Jacobs and Boylan draw on some of the prominent strands of the saucer world that have existed almost from the beginning. Boylan's claims, especially his more recent claims, are not entirely dissimilar to the contactees. Indeed, he seems to be swiping Van Tassel's and, and Tuella's Ashtar gimmick, but in a frightfully literal and materialist manner. For Boylan, there's a continuity that runs straight through from the early contactees to the present. Jacobs, on the other hand, seems to be one of the few people who didn't get that the whole O.H. Krill document was a gag. He's still writing about the hybrid infiltration of our planet while coming under increasing criticism over the last few years for the manner in which he's used hypnosis. Most of all, I think that their wildly divergent interpretations of the same basic phenomenon make Jacobs and Boylan a great microcosm of the disagreements and disputes that have always arisen among those who explore the saucer life. I've got links to the books I've mentioned in the show notes, and you can check those out as well as explore the archives at saucerlife.com. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at saucerlife, or you can email us at thesaucerlife at gmail.com. We'd love your feedback, so get in touch. And if you haven't already, you can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, your preferred podcast app through the RSS feed on the website. Ratings and reviews on iTunes and other platforms are always appreciated, and we thank those of you who have done so already. Next time, as we continue the 1990s, we're going to look at some books you should read from the 1990s. So these are my favorite, least favorite, lost classic book everybody has in their bookshelf but never read. Sort of a, a, a wide array of 90s books for you to explore. The Saucer Life is written and produced by me, Aaron Gullius, and is a Chizo Media production. Till next time, keep watching the skies, because the skies are watching you.